whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you're producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden, and this is The Kara Golden Show, and I am so thrilled to have my next guest here. We have Chip Wilson, who is really an iconic entrepreneur, but probably is best known for being the founder of Lululemon, but so much more, which he's going to talk to us a lot more about that and everything that he's been doing since Lululemon, but even before that as well, founding West Beach Snowboarding in 1997, sold it before founding and running Lululemon. In 2019, Chip partnered with Antisports to buy Amerisports, which includes brands such as Atomic, Arcteryx, Solomon, and Wilson Sporting Goods. 
On his website, Chip says that he thinks an entrepreneur is someone who is too incompetent to work for anyone else. I loved that. And is driven to bring unpopular ideas to fruition. And I'm so excited to talk a little bit more about that. So the story of Lululemon, which is available for free on his website, incredible. You can also order it on Audible and and, uh, lots of other places as well. But he is definitely somebody that I hugely admire and probably admire even more after being connected uh, with him and talking a little bit more about his journey. So thank you, Chip, so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kira. So let's start at the beginning. I'd love to get a picture of young Chip Wilson. And who were you as a kid? I mean, were you, did you always know that you would, uh, you know, hang a shingle and and go and do something that was going to actually change a category? I d- I have to say that I would be very entrepreneurial right from the beginning. I know I was a competitive swimmer and 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 quite good at it, but I in those days you had to go door to door, you had to sell things, you had to raise money for the swim team to travel and our family didn't have um, you know, it was we were constrained on money <laughs> like everybody else. Um but I'd say that that I found I was very good at sales. I found I was a very good athlete. I was very competitive. I loved to win. Um, I was a, you know, quite a good student, and um, you know, didn't work very hard at at, at, at anything in school. But um, I really discovered through swimming that the harder I worked, the better the results I got. I love that. I talk a lot about athletics, childhood athletics, and I feel like. Um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself. You also learn a lot about uh, the value of bringing people who, at least I did, people who are better than me onto the team <laughs> mm. so that you can learn people who are different from you as well. Like, what are you going to learn from them too, which I think is just is super, super, super valuable. So who were your primary influences when you were a youngster? Well, 100% my my mom and dad. My my dad was a phys ed teacher and uh, and also one of the first hippies. Spent uh, and he ended up grad, uh, retiring and becoming an assistant gardener at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California, which is kind of one of the original seventies communes sure. type of thing. And you know, experimenting with drugs and sex and and the forms of thought and the S program and that type of thing. Um, very much a free spirit, but a but a but a hard-driven athlete at the same time, Calgary's Athlete of the Year in 1952. And then my mom was, um, you know, also the the first uh, female lifeguard in San Diego at the Plunge, and and she uh, gymnast, um, you know, very very smart. Ended my parents ended up meeting at uh, uh, BYU in 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 Utah, and. Um, and I was a funk, the only two non-Mormons at BYU, and that's where I came from. So that's my, they're, they're my heroes. They really set a credible foundation for me with the right type of, um, other, my dad was his thinking and my mom with her abilities. And, and I think I had a very, I was a very big boy for my age. I was 6'3", like playing football at 250. And 
that was a big size at that time and I couldn't find clothing to fit. So then I kind of relied on all my mother's um, ability to sew and patterns and that type of thing. And my dad's, um, you know, athletic driven, you know, driven way to kind of put those two things together. And so did you think that you were going to be an athlete, pro athlete? I mean, was there ever sort of a thinking there that this is what I want to do forever? No. Thinking about what's for dinner, but you haven't had a minute to even think about it before now? Well, let's not make that mistake again. I have a tip for you. Factor. Stress-free, delicious, ready-to-eat meals, just perfect for spring and summer yumminess. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes or less. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options keto, vegan, veggie, or calorie smart, Factor has you covered. Discover more than 60 add-ons every week too, like breakfast and on-the-go lunch choices, snacks and beverages now too. Stay fueled and feel good all day long with whatever they are creating over at Factor for you. And the best part, each meal is ready to eat in just two minutes or less. And who wouldn't want that? Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. Get started today and fuel up for your spring and summer goals. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash golden50 and use code golden50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code golden50 at factormeals.com slash golden50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. That's code GOLDEN50 at factormeals.com slash GOLDEN50 to get 50% off plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is Super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, 
from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. Because I think I was a competitive swimmer most of my life and there was no money in that. I was pretty clear about that. I definitely wanted to become a a phys ed teacher like my dad. And my mom pulled me to the side one day and said, son, there's no money in being a phys ed teacher. And, (laughs) and you don't, and because you love it so much, you probably don't want to do that every day as a job. You probably want it as a hobby. So figure out something else to do. I love it. So one of the things that I, uh, I heard actually on what another one of my favorite podcasts, Tim Ferriss's podcast, he talked about Alaska with you and your, your journey up to Alaska. So where were you before you ended up getting up to Alaska and how did that happen? Well, my dad was originally from Calgary. So we, after he, uh, my parents graduated from university down in Fullerton in LA, they, um, we moved to Calgary and, uh, I went, you know, grew up there and, um, I was going to university at the end of my second year and, uh, I was in an airport, ran across a, a mother of a friend of mine. And she said, um, oh yeah, we're moving to Alaska. My husband's running one of the five sections on the largest free enterprise project in the world, which was the pipeline at the time. And she said, too bad you're not American. I could get you a job on the pipeline. I said, well, it just so happens I am American. So I ended up, uh, you know, two weeks later leaving my secondary university and, and working on what was probably the highest paying job for, um, uh, 18 year old in the world. And in today's dollars, I ended up making about $750,000 in a year and a half. As, I, as imagine that as a 19 year old. So it was an astounding amount of money. And, um, fortunately I, I didn't blow it, you know, but I, 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 but you, somebody, some people could say I blew it because I spent all my money educating myself on how to be the best in the world at apparel, technical apparel clothing before I even knew that that's really what I wanted to do. I, I love that. So how long were you up in Alaska? Um, 18 months. Uh, most people would work uh, six weeks on and two weeks off. I worked 18 straight months and took two weeks off in the middle. Wow. That's, that is absolutely incredible. So after leaving Alaska, you decide to start your first company. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I came back and then I finished graduating from university. I call it the seven-year bachelor program. And, uh, kind of moved around a lot, but I figured I better move into business. And I, I've actually, I got kicked out of business because I couldn't pass accounting. So I went into the arts of business, which is called economics, and found out I was pretty good at it, I think, because there was no real solid answer in economics, and you could kind of bullshit your way around. So um, I got out of that, worked for an oil company in Calgary um, between the ages of 25 and 30, but at the same time at 25, I started up a surf 
I, you know, I was in California a lot because my, my relatives were there. I brought back the surf business into Canada. And because I had no competition, I could get economy of scale production. And then I took the surf business to Europe and Japan before Quicksilver and Billabong did. So it kind of gave me quite a, quite a basis for that. And then my, one of my goals coming out of Alaska was to be in my own business by the age of 30, solidly. So at the, on my 30th birthday, I quit uh, my oil company and, and went solidly into the apparel business. So this was West Beach. And Correct. What, do you, what do you think was the, the key thing that you learned? When you think back, somebody's going to go start a company, it's a version of yourself at that age. What would you say, like you didn't know? At, in starting it that you, you know now? <laughs> I made a product nobody wanted or <laughs> everyone told me they didn't want. So I, I, I made these the very first pair of long baggy shorts, which no one, to give context back to 1980, I mean, people wore, if you watch movies from the 1970s, men wore very tight, very tight, short shorts. Sure. And so I made very long baggy shorts. And um and I had more to it than that. My mom was a quilter, so I quilted them on one side and made them black on another. They were an incredible an incredible item. Um so I opened up a couple of stores. But then everyone told me, I mean, why did I open two stores? Because I I took the product and I went to wholesale them like everybody else in the world, but no one would buy them. So I had my first inventory problem. Hmm. So then the only way to get out of the inventory was to basically open up my own store. So I opened up my own store and sure enough, you know, it was, it was very successful. And I was doing something no one else had done is that not only was I ma designing and manufacturing, but I also didn't wholesale. So I had two margins there that nobody else in the apparel business sure. had. So I had two retail stores and I, but I didn't know what I had. I was too young. I had no experience and everyone told me that wholesaling was the way to go. And, um, and so I started wholesaling in order to increase the, the volume that I was manufacturing. But at the end of 17 years, I ended up with two retail stores that were making a million dollars each and this international wholesale business that was losing a million dollars. So that was my big learning. That's incredible. So you sold West Beach after a few years. Uh, you were there for a while, actually, from right 79 yeah. to 97. What was it like selling that first company? Were you were you happy? Were you ready? I mean, and how do you like what was what was kind of the feeling at that point? Oh, I was incredibly happy to sell. I call that, you know, my 18 year MBA. <laughs> because I really didn't make any money. Yeah. It, what I, I learned was that, the, you know, every business goes through a cycle. It starts off with, in the surf business, three companies, goes to 500 companies, then down to three companies in seven years. Same thing happened in skateboarding. Same thing happened in, in um, snowboarding. And it takes so much money to build up and to beat the competition before there's more competition there. But then when there's a lot of competition and there's dumping of product, mergers and acquisitions, et cetera, then the margins get so depressed, there's no money to be made on the other side. 
So, and because I'd got myself so heavily into the wholesale business, which took so much money um, so far in advance to make zippers and jackets and fabrics and everything else, I never could make any money. And Hmm. plus I had all these wholesalers that would never pay me on time and they'd go bankrupt and they'd wreck the brand and they'd go on sale of my product. And, and it was very frustrating. And I just, it was, it was a great learning experience, but I felt when I sold like, oh man, now it's time to just go get a job at Starbucks as a barista. Did you do that? Well, no, I was going to, and probably would have done that, but then I'm walking down the street and I, uh, I see one of those telephone posts with the ripoff thing of a yoga class, and I sit down at a at a coffee shop, and I'm listening to two women next to me talk about yoga. And in those days, I opened up the newspaper, and there was an article about yoga there, and I went, oh, my God, like, this is the same thing as surf, skate, snowboarding. This is going to be massive. And um, I kind of decided right then and there I was going to, you know, bet the farm everything I'd I, I ended up with a million dollars out of selling West Beach and so I decided I was going to go full on into yoga. That's wild at which ultimately became Lululemon. So yeah. so what did you so what was sort of the beginning of that? I mean obviously taking that piece of paper off the post and and really becoming passionate um, you're obviously a visionary entrepreneur who sees the trends. Did other people see what you saw? I mean, did they think it was crazy that you were heading into this direction? And what, what was kind of the yeah? The I'd say it was the same in surf, skate, snowboarding, though, because it was basically a 14 to 18 year old boy, and nobody in financing or money would really understood that market. So they probably still don't really understand today. Um, so. Um, I remember when I when I registered or incorporated Lou Lemon that my lawyer he told me later, of course, he went, Oh yeah, like a yoga company is gonna work. <laughs> so I mean that's that was just been standard about anybody with business or you know, and yeah, these are things that have to be proven out before people who are so called smart money will come into it. Yeah, no, absolutely. They probably thought it was, you know, niche and <laughs> not gonna be uh, big enough. And, but I think that the whole idea, I mean, I remember when you were starting just, you know, the, the idea of going to a class like yoga was, I mean, you wore sweats, right? I mean, yeah. it, or short, I mean, you just, and everybody kind of wore the same thing. It was sloppy. It was, uh, I don't know. It just, you really changed it and things, um, you know, including the fabrics and the material and all those things that Lululemon obviously became so famous for and disruptive for was really your vision. So I, uh, I definitely admire that about you and, and also recognize how hard it probably was where you did have people like the, the, I call them the money guys, right? Where they, they didn't get it. Um, but you still figured out a way to push through. So how do you do that? Like, how do you set your mind in that direction when you have a lot of, I call them doubters around you that you're not going to be able to move forward? How do you do that? Well, I was very fortunate in that, again, with my million dollars that I got out of selling West Beach, I didn't actually need the money people. So they wouldn't have come anyway. Yeah. And um, well, I mean, I of course... 
<laughs> I can't say that directly because I I did run into th- maybe probably four times in the first probably three years of building Lululemon where I could have gone under, you know, like in moments. I, I just ran out of ran out of time. I couldn't get the market going quickly enough. Uh, it was cost a lot of money to to get as any business does to get it up and going and and to get enough people wanting to buy the product. So, um, um, you know, nothing was, nothing was easy, but, you know, I think I'm just like, I, I would have done it for no money. It's mm-hmm. just what I absolutely love to do was to make technical apparel. And I, and I think that one of the successes with it was I used what, what I call West coast function, like people on the West coast, especially up in Vancouver, where the weather is like spectacularly different every day and using that kind of thinking about uh, absolute function with what I called Italian styling. Mm -hmm. So putting these two things that had never been put together before. Absolutely. And what, that was kind of my, my next question. So Lululemon, what do you think made it so unique? And, you know, obviously getting people, those first few hires that you hired in, but also, obviously, the product was so incredible. But what would you say? Somebody hadn't heard of Lululemon. They knew they ran into you. Like, what would you say made it really so unique back in in the beginning? And then carried on, frankly, for still to this day. Well, I always said that Lululemon was actually a people development company, kind of behind a charade of of technical apparel. So it was. It was the way that we develop people. Now, that really was a function of the time. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I recognized was a brand new market that was never going to exist, that had never existed before. And that is what I would call a 22 to 32-year-old single professional woman. Because up until 1998, probably most women got married at 22, right out of university, and had children at 23. But I think they'd seen their mothers, they'd seen the, how hard they'd work, these divorced mothers. I think they were looking for a different type of life. They knew they had to have a great education in case they ever got divorced. So you had a market that had never existed before, or which I foresaw was coming. Uh-huh. And that was when when these highly educated women had the pill they were going to have they were going to wait a long time to have children and they were going to have fewer children so i call this group the supergirls as opposed to their mothers which i called the power woman so they when they came into the workforce other companies weren't investing in women there was no point in it because they just thought they'd leave at 23 so what's the point mm-hmm. i saw it much differently so i saw like this is going to be uh, this is a resource that's never been exp- that's no one has ever like looked at and gone. This is this is a way to run a business and go. I'm going to now take these women. I'm going to put two thousand dollars into their training and development right off the bat. I'm going to assume every one of them is great. I'm not going to wait until they show me their their good employees in order to put money into them. I'm going to assume they're all great. And because we did it that way, we created a, a like just a powerhouse of employees that were driven, that could see a future for themselves. We were growing fast enough where they could all see um, that 
they their positions in life going moving from a a person working in the retail store right up to being a CEO. They could all easily see themselves in that position. I could I could take teachers that would be making in the union maybe forty two forty three thousand dollars a year, and I could pay them seventy thousand dollars a year working in a retail store. And it was, but it was really the exponential development of people and their ability to then develop other people, and they would develop other people that really made the 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 system work. Well, I know people who have worked at uh, Lululemon and underneath your leadership in San Francisco, and uh, actually in East Hampton as well. <laughs> and I definitely, I remember walking into the stores and seeing the manifesto. It was just so different, and it mm-hmm. was really the first. And and really, I felt like your employees spoke to that, and you inspired them. And mm-hmm. it was a place that people felt good about. They understood the mission. Uh, all of those things, I think, create the culture that you definitely did such an excellent job doing. How did you come up with the name Lululemon? Well, I always said I'd never say this again because it's the reason I wrote the book because I found out I was saying it three times a day because everyone wanted to know. But I'll, I'll, um, I think it is a good story. Um, when I had West Beach, I bought a snowboard brand called Homeless, uh-huh. uh, Homeless Skateboards, and so I started selling that in Europe and Japan. And um, but kind of at the same time, skateboarding was was declining and snowboarding was taking off. So. Being a good CEO, I went okay. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm getting out of skateboarding. I'm gonna focus in totally on snowboarding. So I told the distributors in Japan and Europe, and that I wasn't gonna do homeless anymore. Anyway, I'm showing the the Japanese the snowboard clothing brand later that year, and after I show them the product, they go, "Ah, oh, Mr. Chipsan, uh, we're homeless." And I said, look at I told you guys I'm not doing it anymore, focusing on snowboarding. That's all there is to it. Anyway, the, the next year, same thing. Mr. Chipson, we're homeless. I said, I'm not doing it. About a month later, they called me up. And you have to get the context that the Japanese yen was the most powerful currency in the world at that time. They were buying Pebble Beach and Empire State Building. Any, they were buying up America with all the, the cheap American dollars and the powerful yen. And so they said, uh, Mr. Chipsan, we want to buy name homeless from you. And I went, well, I'm selling complete air here because I never registered the name because H-O-M is French for male. And there was a, thousands of names that started with H-O-M. So I didn't, there was no point in me trying to like protect a, a trademark on that. And I hadn't been making it for two years. So, and I was basically out of money. And so I gave them a price I thought was absolutely ridiculous. And they went, hmm, okay. And I went, oh, my God, that's the easiest money I ever made in my whole life. I, <laughs> and so I started thinking over the time, like, why did the Japanese love that, you know, like that name so much? And why did they want to buy the brand? And I came to recognize that the Japanese big trading companies were, were creating North American brand names to sell in Japan because they knew that that's what the Japanese consumer wanted. I believe that because homeless had an L in it and L, the phonetic of L doesn't belong in the Japanese language, that the young people knew that that was more of an authentic North American brand name. So I thought, ah, now I wonder if that's a reason for its power. So I thought, man, I'm just going to start 
working with alliterations and I'm just going to come up with a name with three L's in it and see if I can ever sell it back to the Japanese for three times as much. <laughs> so that was, so that really the name comes out of absolutely nothing. And it was actually quite a risk at the time because Lemon was very much connected with bad quality Detroit cars. Right, right. So anyway, and then Blue Lemon was just something of an alliteration that just kind of came and it was one of 20 names and 20 logos that I kind of had an idea of. And I put it in front of a hundred women and had them vote on the name and the logo. They picked the name Lou Lemon and they picked the logo from a name I had called Athletically Hip, which was the A for Athletically. That's wild. I'm just curious, is Lululemon available in Japan? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. We'd, I think it was the th third country we'd set up because after mm -hmm. my distributor in Japan for snowboarding actually was the, was the took uh, and started distributing and we opened our first store in Shibuya um, quite early on in, in Lululemon's life. Hiring great employees and keeping them is part of the growth plan for your business. Trinet offers full-service HR solutions tailored to small and medium-sized businesses so you can retain talent and grow. We're talking access to top benefits, help with compliance and payroll, even when your team is remote or out of state. The works. Because Trinet gets it. Your people matter to your business. Learn more about their HR solutions at trinet.com slash podcast. That's T-R-I-N-E-T dot com slash podcast. Trinet. Incredible starts here. One of the things that I really admired you and your under your leadership of Lululemon is your brand ambassador program. And mm -hmm. I feel like you were just the master of gathering the yoga studios and, and getting them to share that Lululemon was it. I mean, you were selling, uh, I think many of the studios were selling your product in there as well, correct? Or definitely the yoga instructors were also sharing the fact that what they were wearing was from you. So would you do it differently if you were to start a company today? I mean, what? how do you think the timing for that versus the way brand ambassadors, uh, I mean, do you think it's been overkilled on the brand ambassador <laughs> program? I, I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, I can't tell you how many companies I'm invested in that want to know about how the community was built. And um, I think it obviously any good marketing idea, like putting the manifesto on the side of the bag, it, you know, the shopping bag, you know, works at a time, but won't you know, it and has incredible power. And the way we built community was incredible at the time because nobody else was doing it. And it felt so authentic because it was the first time it was being done. And nowadays it looks like, oh, just a kind of a, a corporate strategy in order to build community marketing, so to speak. How it started out was um, when I first started, when I was designing snowboard product, I was 32 years old and designing it for 14 to 18 year old boys. I've just discovered that they, they knew a lot more than I did. And I was seen as old at the age of 32, especially for snowboarding. And I understood how having those people on with West Beach clothing on was really, really powerful. I knew I didn't have the market, the marketing muscle that Nike did or other people like that, that would sponsor people for millions of dollars in order to have their product. So I just basically took everybody that was that 
was underneath the sponsorship level stage and gave them product and asked them for, um, um, what would I, what would I say, like comments back about the technology or the color or the fit of our clothing. So then I, I recognized that, that actually that ended up being for a return on investment way, way more powerful than Nike going and sponsoring a great, a bigger athlete. And it was more authentic because I actually got, people didn't feel like, oh, like I should go buy a Michael Jordan because, you know, uh, or, or Michael Jordan's just being sponsored by Nike in order to to wear his stuff. It's not that he actually likes it. And I, maybe I'm being a little bit facetious there, but by having product on actually people in the community that people really loved and respected, that was way more powerful. And I could sponsor, not sponsor, we could, we could give our product and have them test to many, many more people for the amount of money that I had available at the time. Plus, I didn't have very much money, so I couldn't really do a sponsorship, so I had to work the community model. So those, um, they ended up being, you know, the well, one, I was a male and I was selling female clothing. So let's get pretty clear that I couldn't wear it and really understand it as well. Sure. Um, they, so I would sponsor um, or get ambassadors that were yoga teachers. I would give them product. They would then help me out, like how is the fit, the color, as I was saying before. And then we would use that information and then re, and then you know, redesign our apparel to be absolutely perfect. So your book is incredible. Thank you. Absolutely incredible. Where's the best place for people to get it? I mentioned on your, your site. Yeah. I mean, they can get it at chipwilson.com. They, if they want to read it on that form, they can also get it on Kindle on Amazon and they can get it on audio on Audible. So many stories in there, so many lessons. Um, there was one specific instance uh, that happened in 2013. I would love for you to kind of share a little bit about that story, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure. It's my most unfavorite, but probably the most famous. Yeah. Well, first off, this the, the book is called The Story of Lou Lemon. So if people want to research it that way. Yeah, in, um, in 2012, I... Um, we had a CEO. I thought she was doing a terrible job, and I think she was playing the quarterly numbers game, and she was um, uh, not putting money into quality, not put, not reinvesting in the brand. I knew that we were entering probably the next 10 years, which would be the largest change in the way people addressed in the history of the world, and yet we were getting cheap. We were uh, we weren't fulfilling on our promise to the customer, and I was getting highly frustrated with a board that was so enamored by the quarterly numbers that the CEO was putting out that they couldn't see the long-term poor effects of what was going to happen. I kept tell saying about the quality control, I couldn't stand it anymore, so I moved to Australia. <laughs> and uh, I was still, I was chairman of the board, and I said, okay, if you think that this is the right CEO, then you can have her. And... Um, I'll get out of the way so you know that I'm not interfering with anybody. And sure enough, we had a major quality control issue. I come back. The board asked us, to, my wife and I, to come back. We, we fixed the company. They still wouldn't get rid of the CEO because I think they were embarrassed by having her and they didn't have a replacement. But, you know, really bad 
governance, terrible mm-hmm. governance, not having a replacement. Anyway, so I had been proposing this med- to bring meditation into Lululemon um, as the next movement, kind of like I did in West Beach, where I went from surf, skate, snowboarding. I thought meditation's the big next big movement. I think I was right. Um, the company, the board of directors wanted nothing to do with it. Either did the CEO. And so um, I was being interviewed on on meditation on a, I, I don't even remember the program now. It's, I think maybe it was Bloomberg. I, I can't even remember. Yeah. And um, right. as we get, and get halfway through it, she asked me about the quality control issues on, on Lou Lemon. Quite frankly, I should have thrown the board of directors and the CEO under the bus, but you know, it's not what you do type of thing, you know? So I kind of took it and I said, well, you know, some, sometimes, you know, we, you know, you have seat belts, which will cut into the fabric. You have purses, which will cut in the fabric. People sit on, you know, cement and it'll cut into the fabric. So, you know, there was pilling issues, you know, type of thing. And I went, well, you know, quite frankly, some, some pants just don't, you know, fit you know, you know, all women's bodies or something like that. I can't remember the exact thing I said, but it was interpreted as Chip Wilson doesn't like fat women and doesn't think that <laughs> fat women belong in Lululemon clothing. It was so stupid. I mean, the, the idiocy of the woman that was interviewing me and the, the profit motive of the comp- uh, Bloomberg and the, it was, but what was really it is, it was the very first time when, the cancel culture occurred mm-hmm. where social media, the, the, the weak 5% made it sound like they were the strong 95%. So it, um, so, but at the time, you know, the, nobody knew how strong social media was and nobody really in, interpreted like that. So I ended up being taken off as chairman of the board and I was no longer the spokesman for Lou Lemon. And uh, even though I'd built probably the number one woman's company in the world and probably had more women directors than anybody else, um, you know, I just had a weak board. And so, uh, and that was kind of the, the downfall of my, uh, my career. And I wouldn't say it's a downfall. It was a moment in time, um, but I found it, uh, you had shared that story with me and I also listened to it in your book on, on Audible. I bet there's a lot of lessons there, right? There's, there's for, for you, you know, when you went on then after that uh, to purchase some other c- companies and get very involved in other things. I mean, you talk about the board and about like, have you thought about that as you've been forming other boards and the importance of, of never losing control of that board? Well, yeah, I mean, now I'm a private equity guy. I'm on the other side and I'm a, um, you know, and I'm a board, you know, member of, of, you know, a few companies. And, um, I think have, I think very much of that. I think number one is that in order to have a public board, you know, to fulfill all the committees, you need nine people and eight of those probably have to be metric security guardian type of thing. Um, people that because of the structure, you have to protect the financial numbers mm-hmm. and and fraud, exact, exact kind of thing. And that takes a certain mindset. There's nobody that thinks about how much money is lost on brand and product if there's nobody overseeing that. In other words, 
what the public company ends up doing is you end up with a bunch of people that are counting the money they do have, not the amount of money that you could have if you actually had a great product and brand. So um, there's, there, I can see no way out of it. I think the worst thing that can happen now is is going public, quite frankly. It's, uh, it's a recipe for disaster unless those one or two people that are creative or founders or that have some sort of like, some sort of power and can, but how do you vote the other eight people? It's almost impossible. And the eight people are security driven and scared, and they're not going to do things that an entrepreneur, a founder, you know, want to do. They, a founder or an entrepreneur can never um, say 100% that their idea is going to like succeed in the future. And that scares the hell out of metric people sure. where 100% of time, a CFO or a metric-driven CEO can go to the board and go, I can guarantee this because I can show you exactly the numbers based on the past of where we're going to go. Well, that's what you end up getting, and you end up getting a 7% return rather than a 100% return. Right. It's so interesting. So when you're building these boards then, these eight people, minimum, or you said minimum nine people, so... What do you think that you do differently in building those boards that other people, other private equity people, you don't see them doing? Well, I think the only reason I got on this board with uh, because Anta, which is kind of the Nike of China, is owned by Chairman Ding. Um, their family has a 60% control over it. You know, he built that from the bottom up. So he, like me, are entrepreneurs. We've And we know how to clean the toilets. We know how long it takes. We know how to put the lighting. I mean, we've traveled. We've, we've stayed in bad hotels. We understand the business top to bottom. So it's not like I'm getting in with another corporate board. I I really like the fact that between Chairman Ding and I, we have, you know, maybe 70% control over it, but we have those great metric people that we need. It's just that Chairman Ding has, with 51%, has total control. So mm-hmm. he's got, you got a founder entrepreneur that's actually can call the last shots. So that's, that was the appealing part for me, getting into Ammer. What do you think is the future of athletic retail today? I mean, obviously, you're involved in some incredible brands with him. What do you think is is sort of the future at this point? Well, I, I still think the model I set up at Lululemon is by far the best model that I've seen, and that is no wholesale. Mm-hmm. And now what Lou Lemon did was that it eliminated wholesale. So in other words, we could, we could make product and go, you know, open our own retail stores and go direct to the customer. Now you have a model probably over the last 10 years where people have gone, ah, I can avoid the middle, the, the middleman of the retail store and I can just go straight e-commerce. What seems to be very, very clear, at least in apparel is that, um, you know, the tactile feel of apparel and the actual fit are really important. And the number of returns that pure e-commerce sites are getting because people don't can't feel the fabric and they don't have the fit, the returns are killing their bottom numbers. People are ordering four things, returning one. It's too expensive. Mm-hmm. So these people now are going back, the, the pure e-com plays are going back and they're having to open up retail stores, but they don't understand vertical retails. 
They don't understand how to run a, a real retail store, just like wholesalers didn't know how to run a wholesale store or pardon me, a retail store. So you're finding um, I th- it's a convergence of, I, th- I believe, uh, a model like Lou Lemon uh, meeting in the middle somewhere with a pure e-commerce play that's now trying to go retail. Now, as I said before, in wholesale, if you made something for $50, you'd wholesale it for 100 and then it would sell in a retail store for 200 Mm-hmm. Lou Lemon was able to make something for $50 and sell it out of its own retail stores for $150. So it could undercut the wholesale. An e-commerce, pure e-commerce play could make something for $50 and sell it on e-com for $100. Mm-hmm. So somewhere now, I think that if they, if those pure e-commerce people are just are going to start opening up retail stores, there's a cost to it. And the cost is more than a pure, just playing e, pure e-com. So I think their pricing is going to have to come up. I think a model like Lululemon, their pricing is going to have to come down. Or or a e, pure e-commerce player like Gymshark or, um, um, you know, we're seeing Montech out of um, Sweden. I mean, these companies are going to figure out how to... Um, how to take business away from what could be an old business model like Lululemon. So interesting. And definitely you, you mentioned a couple of uh, Brent Montech. I've been watching those guys. I mean, so, so yeah. interesting, uh, really super interesting. So one of the things I, I saw in my research on, you know, your philanthropy, you've been in addition to building uh, helping build some other companies out there that we mentioned, uh, your philanthropy, the FSHD organization. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I finished doing the Ironman when I was 28. And when I was 32, I just, um, I couldn't swim anymore. I, something was wrong with my swimming. And I went to a neuro, uh, you know, a, a doctor and, you know, he took one look at my body and he said, well, you have no, your your upper body is wasting away. And and um, so he, I got tested and I got tested for fascicular scapular muscular dystrophy. So my scapular and triceps and chest had kind of gone away, but I had these massive legs and this kind of like scrawny upper body. So I didn't think much of it. And I think I've been pretty good for many, many years. And about four years ago, I just, you know, I, I, I started stumbling. So I know that's gone to my legs, et cetera. So I'm in an incredible position in life where I've made, you know, like lots of money and there's no point in dying with money. Um, and so I went, okay, well, you know, I'm, I can do something about this. So I put up a hundred million dollar, um, investment, you know, I don't need to make any money on it. I, I, I give grants, I invest in companies in order for them to be able to get over hurdles to, to be able to invest and do clinical science and muscular dystrophy. Um, we're doing regeneration of muscles, working with the U.S. military kind of, um, operations, and we're going to figure out how to um, how to solve muscular dystrophy by December thirty first, twenty twenty seven. That's incredible. Well, I was so inspired. Again, was already inspired by you, Chip Wilson. But when I heard about that as well, I mean, it's just it's it's amazing, and I love that you've put a date on it. Um, too. So that is, that is a true business person versus a uh, nonprofit, right? You're saying we're going to go do this. I think I love it. So it's really, really great. Well, this has been such a pleasure to talk to you, Chip. You are, 
you know, so great. And I really, really enjoyed our conversation. There's been so many nuggets in here. Um, I love the uh, conversation around the challenges of uh, of retail and and uh, and really the perception of what you have to do in terms of wholesaling products and and you how you've built a business and learned you know the good and the bad of stuff that you've done and shared with us. So I really, really appreciate that. Uh, people can find you at chipwilson.com and also definitely pick up a copy of his book. You can get it from his site or, as I mentioned, many other places, uh, too. I, I love listening to it on Audible as well. So it was uh, it was great to hear that. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to The Kara Golden Show, where you're going to hear incredible interviews from creators just like Chip. Um, and definitely uh, do me a favor and give this five stars. It totally helps the algorithm. I promise it really <laughs> does. And just a reminder, you can find me all over on lots of platforms at Kara Golden and definitely pick up a copy of my book if you haven't already. Uh, it's called Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters. It's also available on Audible where I share my story of building the company that I founded, Hint. And and uh, definitely visit us uh, every Monday, Wednesday, and now Friday, uh, where we do this and uh, get to be inspired and learn so much more. And thank you so much, Chip, for joining us today. It was such an honor. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Kara. Always fun. Awesome. Thank you. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders. But achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Kara Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.